Amen. You can be seated. If you've got your Bibles, do me a favor, turn to 2 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 12, I believe it is. If you have been with us for the last few weeks, uh, then you know that we've been in 2 Corinthians for the last few weeks, actually really the last six, to be specific and precise, Uh, and we're going to be spending pretty much an indefinite period of time in it going forward, and uh, this is a letter with a history. Second Corinthians was not written into a vacuum, but there is a background here that is rich and deep and complicated. Paul is not writing to strangers, as it seems that he was in the letter of Romans. He is writing to people whom he knows. He is writing to people whom he has seen face to face and likely visited at least twice. Uh, the first visit in 50 AD to found the church in Corinth. The second visit after word has come to him that the church in Corinth has fallen away. And it's in Paul's second visit that he has all of his worst fears confirmed that this church in Corinth has gone AWOL, uh, that it has fallen into heresy. They have rejected him as an apostle. They've rejected his authority. And there is at least one man in the church in Corinth who, whether it's in one of their prayer meetings or one of their church gatherings, stands up and publicly criticizes Paul rather than just sort of snickering and murmuring behind his back. And so Paul leaves Corinth deeply concerned that this church is well on its way to making shipwreck of its profession. After this second visit, Paul writes two more letters. One of them is called the Tearful Letter, which we talked about last week, in which he begs the church in Corinth to repent. And as far as we can tell, they do repent. They realize that they've made a mistake. They realize that the people they've accepted as leaders in their church are not qualified to lead the people of God. They accept Paul back as their apostle. But then they turn on the people who caused them to turn on Paul, even though many of these people are repentant. With that in mind, Paul writes 2 Corinthians And I say all this not to rehash what you've heard a million times before, but because he is dealing specifically in our section of Scripture today with the man who stood up and opposed him during his last visit. And so it's with this in mind we come to the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we are in verses 5 on. It says this, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not for me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should gather, or you should rather, turn to forgive and comfort him, that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, What I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. If you pay attention to social media, uh, really if you just pay attention to the world around you, and I try to pay attention to social media because it's just an endless source of entertainment for me, uh, you'll, you'll notice that there is this trend that has emerged really among people in, within our generation, millennials, if you want to call us that. It's a gross term. I, I don't like being called that. But there's this, this retro trend that is sort of creeping into marketing, into aesthetics, and even to fashion. You see stores open up, especially in my neck of the woods in Seminole Heights. A store opens up, and it's basically a grocery store, but it's named Flicker and Flame, 
uh, dry goods and services, something or other. They name it as though it's some Dust Bowl era shop on the frontier, when in reality it's just a smaller version of Publix. Uh, there is this trend to go back to an older, more antiquated aesthetic. You see it in the way that many of the guys dress. You can sit at Starbucks up here on 60 or anywhere else. The guys look like they're extras from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Complete with beard curled on the ends and Dapper Dan hair product. You see it in, in the way that many girls dress. There's this return to kind of this older aesthetic of the way things look. And in a lot of ways, I think that that is a natural reaction uh, to the myth of modernity. You see, many of us have been raised thinking that progress is endless, that things will always get better and newer things are always better than older things. And I think that at this point in our lives, we're beginning to realize that that's just not true. That sometimes old things are better and new things aren't good just because they're newer. And so I'm sympathetic to this trend to go back to the old way of doing things, the old way of working. But, but it comes with these buzzwords, and, and I've got to say that, that buzzwords, to a certain extent, drive me crazy, because generally speaking, we use these buzzwords without ever really defining them, so that as we throw them out, we're not actually saying anything. Uh, maybe you've seen The Princess Bride before, and there's this line in it where he says, you keep saying that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. And I think in our day and age, we find ourselves in such a scenario, There's some buzzwords that have come with this sort of um, modern maker aesthetic uh, that has kind of beset us. People talk all the time about being authentic. Search the hashtag liveauthentic and see the millions of posts that are tagged under it. People say things like, man, I'm just trying to be more authentic, whatever that might mean. Uh, Closely associated with that and used in many churches. I think we actually even use it here at Baylife. This isn't a slight against our church, but uh, being real. I just want to be authentic. I just want to be real with people. I remember uh, a wedding that I attended for a friend, and there was a girl that I'd known in high school, and she was at the wedding, and she was getting ready to graduate college. This was several years ago. And I said, hey, you're almost done with school. What's your, what's your plan after that? You got a job lined up? You doing grad school? What? what's coming down the radar for you? And she said, you know, I think I really just want to move to Europe and be real with people. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> That's not a job. I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I just want to work in a hostel and just be real with people. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what does that mean, right? We just use the word and it sounds good, right? I'm just authentic. I'm just real. But what are we talking about? And then again, and you see this in churches time and time again, community. I'm just trying to live in community. I just, I just really crave community. Again, I say we keep using that word, but I don't think it means what we think it means. And I don't think we realize the weight of what we're asking for when we say that we crave community, especially in the church Now, the early church recognized that the church itself is a community. But the way that we have set up modern evangelicalism, even in our language and our verbiage, is anti-community. It's your personal relationship with Jesus, your personal walk with the Lord. Now, I'm not slighting those things. They're good. You should know the Lord. This this is the, the great boast of Paul in Philippians, that I can count all of my suffering as lost because I know him. 
There's a personal aspect to Paul's relationship, but the early church would have said, just as much as Jesus died to save you, he died to save us together, this people, in this time, in this place, for a purpose. And so no, your relationship with God is not something to be practiced in radical isolation, but it is communal. We come together as the people God has saved in Brandon, Florida, to celebrate this great salvation. Many of us talk about how we love and long for community, but the minute that Christian community begins to take on the New Testament shape, we pull away. The minute that a brother or sister would come to you and say, hey, Steve, I only say that because I don't see any Steves in this room. Um, hey, Steve, I think you might, need, you might need to repent of this. You might be walking in error. Our immediate response is, let me do what I want with my life. Leave me alone. It's my choice. I get to do whatever I want. And here's the reality, is you can talk about wanting community as much as you possibly can. Hashtag it to death on your photos. But the New Testament concept of community goes far deeper and just far weightier. It's far more beautiful than any sort of surface level hashtag buzzword. And we see Christian community manifest in this text that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, the community of faith in Corinth. He begins saying, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not simply to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. I love the fact that Paul has all these side notes because he's trying so hard to be gentle. He's trying so hard not to drop the hammer. And by the end of the letter, he's just like, bump that. (laughs) But at least right now, he's trying to be gentle. But notice what he says. He's he's talking about the man who opposed him during his last visit. And he says, if anybody has caused me pain, if anybody has caused pain, this man that stood up and opposed me, he hasn't just hurt me, he's hurt all of you. Because Paul recognizes that no Christian exists in radical isolation from the rest of the body of Christ. And by the same token, No action of a single Christian can be disconnected from the community in which they are uh, planted by the Lord. Your Christian life is not exercised in a vacuum. Do you want true community? Then you should know that the things that you do with your Friday night and your Saturday morning and your 3 a.m. internet viewing hours, they have bearing on what happens here on Sunday night. You can talk all about community that you want, but the burden of community in the New Testament is that no Christian exists in isolation. And no matter how secret your sin is, it does not simply pain you in your heart, it's not simply a sin against God, but it has consequence for the whole of the body. The way that you conduct yourself at work, whether you practice integrity in the workplace, and you're an honorable person, the way that you conduct yourself in your relationships, whether they're romantic or whether they're simply platonic with you and your friends, the way that you conduct yourself in the public square, whether you're sitting at Starbucks or you're going out with your friends, the Christian concept of community does not divorce what happens here on Sunday night from what happens in each of your individual lives. There is a burden to what we do, and it cannot be escaped. But the reality is that it's not simply negative, right? We could, we could make this a pity party and say, woe is me, I've sinned so much and, and I need to repent of this. And you do. By the way, you're never gonna not hear me tell you to repent because I'm always gonna say it. 
But Paul has already actually talked to the Corinthians about community in his previous letter. Uh, Jordan read a huge section of scripture, and this is actually his last night with us, so I gave him the biggest thing I could think of uh, as a send-off of scripture reading. So if you're wondering why it was so long, that was my long farewell uh, to Jordan. Uh, But he's already talked to the Corinthians about community. He's already explained to them the significance of the fact that the people of God are not just a loose collection of sort of strangers. They have been brought together into one body. So that when one sins, he'll say this to Corinthians, when one of you stumbles, I I mourn. When one of you is led to sin, when is there one of you led to sin where I do not weep? Because we're a community, we're a body. You can't just shoot somebody in the foot and expect the brain and the nerve endings and the mouth to not react to such pain. And so it's not simply this negative portrayal of community. Paul says that that when one man stumbles, he wounds all of us. But he also says in the text that Jordan read for us that when one triumphs, we all rejoice. We all celebrate. Because we are a community knit together not by shared interests or shared backgrounds or shared socioeconomic statuses, but by the spirit of the living God. We could learn a bit from Paul, go figure, about sharing in one another's joys. Many of you know Nick Oliverio, who has led prayer for the last few weeks. He's out of town at an internship over the summer. And he visited a church up there, and I asked him how it went this morning. He texted me and said, hey, I'm trying out a church while I'm here. Could you just pray for it to go well? So he texted me afterwards, and he said, man, it was so cool. Uh, This church sponsors a missionary in Africa. It's a church of like 60, 70 people. And the African missionary gave this church word that they had raised $50 for the month to feed the orphanage. And it was $50 more than they had hoped or or even thought that they were going to raise. And the whole church celebrated that God had brought $50 to these people as opposed to nothing. This church in Philadelphia is celebrating what happened 10,000 miles across the world and something that seems small in the eyes of the world and they gather together and they rejoice over it. If you truly want to experience Christian community, one, you should know your actions don't exist in isolation. Two, you have to learn to celebrate the work of God wherever it's manifest. To celebrate however small the gift of God at whatever corner of the world that it's found in. When one of you has victory over sin, can I just tell you, I don't need to know every little detail of your personal life, but man, when I've gotten texts from people saying, I was struggling with this and I've overcome it, that is cause for great celebration in my house. I pour an extra cup of cat food into Ignatius's bowl, <laughs> I get some checkers, we party. <laughs> Because we are knit together by the Spirit of God. And so when one rejoices, we all rejoice. When the foot succeeds, the mouth shouts in joy. Because this is what Christian community looks like. And so Paul tells them, after having already talked to them about community in his previous letter, that what this man has done has affected not just Paul, not just a few people, not just himself. It has affected the whole Christian community because we are knitted together. He says, he's caused the pain not just to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. He goes on. He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And what it seems has happened here is that this man has realized that what he did was unwise 
uh, realize that he's hurt the whole body of Christ, and he's repentant. And as I've said, uh, what it seems like from Paul's letter is, is that they don't want him back. Like, bump you, you got us into all kinds of trouble, you can go find another church in Corinth, which there's not one. But Paul says to him, listen, I know that what he did hurt all of us, but I am begging you. He is repentant. Bring him back. Reaffirm your love for him. Now, Paul in his previous letter has dealt with church discipline. And that's something that we could spend a long time on. But if you want to read up on it, there's a book in the back called Nine Marks, chapter on church discipline. Dig into it. But Paul has dealt in Corinth with Christians who are in open and unrepentant sin. There's a man who's sleeping with his own mother. That's awful. And Paul says, kick him out. The fact that he doesn't see this as sin and he continues to do it hurts all of us. Kick him out. But to this man, this man who has sinned and hurt the church in Corinth but is repentant, Paul says, I beg you, bring him back. I beg you, show him that you love him. Because this is the heart of the Christian gospel is that sinners and those who are repentant are brought back into the community of God, the triune God, and the, the love of the triune God is reaffirmed in them. The church never looks more like the church than when it welcomes the repentant sinner. I was talking with a pastor in the office this past week about this text we were talking about what church discipline looks like, what it looks like for somebody to, to repent and to be welcomed back and to just be loved and celebrated when they've turned from their sins. And he recounted to me an instance in his church that he worked at previously. And word had gotten out that two staff members were having an affair together. Both of them were married and both of them were cheating on their spouses with one another. One was like a life group's pastor. The other was something else in the church. And so they were both brought in. And a conversation was had, and they said, listen, we want to help you get over this. We want to help you recover from this. We want to help see your marriages thrive. We'll pay for your counseling. We'll do whatever we need to do. And the man in the situation said, no, I'm good. I hate my wife, and um, I don't feel bad about it. And they said, okay, um, we're going to have to ask you to leave until you're repentant. And the woman said, I have done such a wicked thing. I have ruined my marriage I have ruined my children's lives. I cannot believe this thing that I've done. And the church said, we will gladly walk with you through this and do everything that we can to help you make this right. And they walked with her for months. They paid for her counseling. They paid for her marital counseling. They gave her paid time off. And they walked month after month after month with her in repentance. And then when the whole thing was done, when they'd finished the counseling, when the marriage was back on its feet, they had a public celebration as a church for those who knew what had happened to, to reaffirm the joy that they had that she had repented and turned from sin. And he said that experiencing that was one of the most incredible things in his whole life. There were people weeping with joy to see that God had restored somebody who had fallen so far and they brought her back on into her role and, and he said she's working there to this day. Her marriage is strong, her children are healthy because she repented and the church welcomed her in. Now this is difficult. And hear me when I say that this is difficult because very often, especially when people sin spectacularly, everything in us wants to just cast them off, especially in our day and age, and say, you can find another church. Go figure it out. But man, when people repent, 
We never look more like Jesus than when we welcome people who long to change and we walk with them through it in grace and in patience and in love. This man wants to change and Paul says, I beg you, help him change. He says, I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been done for you in the sake, or for the sake, done for your sake in the presence of Christ. Most commentators look at this, and, and what they think that Paul is getting at, because the Greek is very strange here, but what they think that Paul is getting at, at the core of it, is that his very ability to forgive is one that is granted by the presence of Christ in his life. He says, if I have forgiven anyone of anything, no matter the depths of the pain, it has been done in the presence of Jesus who has empowered me to do such things. And then he finishes with this. He says, I have forgiven and for, forgiven them in, um, for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, some of you are reading the Screwtape Letters with us in our book club over the summer and we've got some cool stuff coming down the pipeline for that, and, and stay tuned, I guess. Um, but many of us, I don't think, read Lewis's introduction, because C.S. Lewis says something in the introduction of the Screwtape Letters that, that I think has some, some bearing here. Uh, he says that our race, our human race, falls into two equally opposite errors concerning the existence and the nature of devils. One is to become utterly obsessed with them, uh, to uh, think on them day and night, to find Satan under every leaf and every twig and every rock and behind every cloud that kind of looks like a pointy devil figure. Uh, he says the opposite and the equally opposite error is to completely disbelieve in their existence altogether and to reject them entirely. He says they're pleased with both errors. They hail the magician and the materialist with equal delight. And so I just, I just want to tell you, I'm not the kind of person who finds Satan behind everything. I'm not the sort of person who says, you stubbed your toe, that's the devil. It's not me. But what Paul does say here is, is that unforgiveness among the community of faith, among the body of Christ, he says that is demonic. When one Christian stands next to another harboring bitterness and resentment and unrepentance towards them, he says that is demonic. And I don't, I don't want to shy away from what the text says. And Is it any wonder that the forgiven people of God withholding forgiveness from one another would be the utter and greatest slap in the face to the God who has forgiven them. When the people of God come to the table of the Lord, which is a symbol of their unity in Christ, will they harbor hatred towards their brother and sister? Is that anything less than demonic? When the people of God sing of the goodness and the reconciling power of Jesus together while they despise the person in the pew next to them, is that anything less than demonic? Paul says that I have forgiven these people because to harbor unforgiveness in my heart towards brothers and sisters in the community of the faith is nothing short of rejecting the gospel itself, which is God's forgiveness of sinners despite their wickedness and in spite of their ongoing evil. Can I plead with you? I mean, as we go forward as a ministry, now there's some exciting stuff coming up that I think the Lord is going to do mighty things through, but can we be a community who refuses to keep long accounts against one another. Nothing will divide a church quicker. Nothing will destroy a working of the Spirit among a people quicker than to harbor hatred for the person next to you, even if they deserve it. 
Paul says, I have forgiven this man in the sight of Christ by the power of Christ so that the community of faith would not be undone by Satan. And as we move forward as the college and career ministry of Bay Life Church, I long for us to embody not some cheap hashtag sense of community with fedoras and, and fancy shoes, but I long for us to be a place where this weighty, satisfying, Christ-honoring community is present, where each of us recognizes that what we do has bearing on the people of God here, where each of us is willing, no matter how grievous the offense, to welcome people in with open arms to the kingdom who are repentant, and where each of us keeps a short account of the sins of our brothers and sisters against us, so that when we come to this table every Sunday night, we don't come in vain. We don't come here with bitterness towards the very people that we are sharing the marriage supper of the Lamb with. Can I plead with you? In a world that loves to use the term community, can I plead with you that we would not let the world and our hashtags define community, but we would define it by Scripture, and we would carry the awesome weight of Christian community well? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we are so grateful that you have brought us together as your people to celebrate your work. Lord, Lord, I pray that, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, Lord, that we would be a people who keep short accounts. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who love you and love one another. Lord, so long ago, even the, the pagans and the Roman opposers of Christianity could not help but marvel and say, see how these people love one another. See how they would die for one another at the slightest notice. God, I pray that you would make us such people who feel the awesome weight of that word community and realize that it can only truly be experienced by the power of your spirit. God, I pray that you would continue to move among us tonight as we come to the table, Lord, and as we continue to sing of your praise and your goodness. We ask these things in Christ's name.